please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I ask that this evening our hearts would be opened, that we would see in what your Son has said and done the magnitude of your love for us. Amen. It's customary to preach about the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, on Monday, Thursday. After all, this is the night that we actually sort of enter into that moment and remember what Jesus did and said. The night that we contemplate what happens every single Sunday as we gather around the Lord's table. This is that one time each year when we can look at it more directly. Most of the time, though, we don't contemplate the Lord's table well. In fact, if you follow the track of theologians, you'll discover that most of the time, they just end up in arguments. One of my favorite Anglican theologians, Richard Hooker, urges debate less and enjoy more. Just appreciate and wonder in awe at what God is doing for you here. But of course, we know the track record of the last four or five hundred years, and it is a track record of ferocious debates. Debates where people are primarily arguing about one thing, and that is, what did Jesus mean when he said, this is my body? What did he mean when he said, this is my blood? Most of the debates center around what it is that there is the presence of Christ in this meal. I'm going to steer clear of all those debates tonight. It's not because I'm not interested in them. Feel free to talk to me later. It's just simply because oftentimes in those debates, we miss some of the other things that God is saying to us. In other words, questions like, what does it mean that this is the new Passover? Think for a second. Passover. That moment when blood on the lintel protected the people of God from the angel of death while the enemies of God were destroyed so that people could walk from slavery into freedom. Somehow this is the new Passover. But I'm not going to preach on that as much as I wanted to. What does it mean that it's a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven? Jesus himself made this connection. I tell you the truth, I won't do this again until the great feast in the end. This is the appetizer of the great banquet to come. That's another sermon worth preaching, but one that I'm going to avoid. I actually look forward to the Monday Thursdays ahead with y'all because there are so many things to investigate here that get neglected. The one that I want to meditate, though, with y'all tonight on is the one that is from the mouth of Jesus in verse 20. In the midst of this dinner, he said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is what I want to dwell on. This is what I want to meditate on. What did he mean that this is the new covenant in his blood? Covenants are all over the Old Testament. And we know what they are. They're one of those sort of binding agreements of faithfulness between two parties. 
They're when people join themselves together to the death, and nothing is allowed to break this. We see examples of this, of God making covenants with Adam and Noah, with Abraham and Moses, with David. Theologians love to argue, are there, is there only one covenant that's re-ratified a whole bunch of times? Or are there five? Or are there ten? I'm going to leave that debate aside as well. I just want to dwell on the covenant that Jesus is making. In order to understand covenants, it's useful just to think about the framework from the Old Testament. Exodus 24 is a good place to go, and I'm not going to read the chapter in its entirety, but what we see in Exodus 24 is Moses with the people ratifying this covenant that they have just made with God. God has pledged at Sinai to be their God, and he's given them his law, and they're entering into this binding agreement, and the people say everything that he asks we will do. We will be faithful to him. And God says, and I will be your God. And so in this great ratification ceremony, they build this altar with 12 pillars representing the tribes of Israel. And their sacrifices made. And Moses takes bowls of blood from the sacrifices. Imagine this scene in the wilderness. And with those bowls of blood, he takes one and he dashes it against the altar. And then he takes another bowl of blood and he sprinkles it on the people. And this is the seal of this covenant that the people have made with God. We see in Exodus 24 the basic pattern. It's this binding agreement between man and God. And the people are called to something, called to follow, called to trust, called to obey. And at the point when the covenant is actually ratified, blood is spilt. A sacrifice is made. And the blood is thrown on the altar, smeared on the ear, put on the right thumb or the right toe, sprinkled on the people. There's an agreement that's binding till death. There's terms of the agreement. There's blood spilt. If you wonder why, the blood has to be spilt. It's simply a product of the fact that we chose death in the fall. Because we chose death in the fall, because we choose death every time we rebel against God, there is no such thing now as an agreement with God that does not have death laced through it. And so we see in all these Old Testament covenants, death, so that the covenant can be made. Thus Abraham cutting these creatures in half, falling asleep in the night, and waking in the midst of the night to see God passing between the two halves of the carcasses. The covenant is ratified with blood. This is the pattern throughout the Old Testament. But there's a problem in the Old Testament. And the problem in the Old Testament is that the people are always unfaithful to the terms of the agreement. The people never, leave, never live up to their side of the bargain. They fall away. They cease to trust God. They abandon God. And thus, even though God never fully abandons them, because they fail to live up to their side of the covenant, he removes his hand of protection from them. This great thing that was supposed to be God in covenant with his people always seems to break down. And it breaks down always from the same side. The people cannot be faithful. 
They don't know how to be faithful. They fail to be faithful. They're so unfaithful that God says through the prophets, in effect, it's like you're not even my people anymore. In one of the most haunting verses in the Bible, in Hosea 1.8, Hosea has a son, and God says, name your son not my people, because the people are not mine anymore, and I am not their God. The people have failed to live by their side of the bargain, and God says, it's like you're not even mine anymore. And so he removes his hand from them. He removes his protection from them. He removes his blessing from them. They've abandoned their covenant with God. This reaches its height in the Old Testament and the great exile, where God is still not abandoning his people. Remarkably, he even goes with them into exile. Ezekiel sees a vision of the throne of God on wheels following after the people into the land of Babylon. It's startling that God's going with his people into exile. But because they have abandoned him, the covenant is broken from their side. And so his hand is removed. His protection is removed. His blessing is removed. I want you to feel with me the longing that the people would have had. Because they knew the promises. They were the people of God. They were supposed to show the blessing of God to all of the nations. God chose them. They were God's people. And yet they had failed over and over to live as God's people. And so now, it's like they're not even God's people at all. As you read the prophets, what begins to grow out of this is this longing, this hope, this desire God, you've got to do something new. This system isn't working anymore. We can't live up to our side of the bargain. And remarkably, God's answer to the prophets is not, good luck, I gave you your chances. Remarkably, his answer to the prophets is, I will do something new. I will do something new. He begins to promise with them, that there will be someday a new covenant. This will be fixed. Someday there will be a new covenant. And this will not be like the covenant before. We read one of these passages a few weeks ago. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Where God says to his people, Days are coming when I will make a new covenant with you. He says, I will make a new covenant, and it's not going to be like the one that I made with your fathers. This new covenant will be different because I'm going to do something different. In Jeremiah 31, he says, I'm going to actually give you a new heart. I know where the problem lies. You see, all along, the problem had been inside the heart of man. The people could not keep the covenant of God. And so God says to them in Jeremiah 31 and in other passages, I will fix this problem. I will give you a new heart. I will write my laws on your heart. You will love me from your heart. And he says, and the product of this new covenant is that you will finally, once for all, be my people. Some of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament prophets are like this. They're revolving around this. One of my favorites is one in Isaiah, where Isaiah prophesies that there will be a time coming when the people will write on their hands belonging to the Lord. 
It's like the undoing of that thing that was spoken to Hosea, where God says, you're not even my people anymore. And they're now writing on themselves, stamping themselves, saying, I'm God's through and through. This new covenant comes because God says, I will give you a new heart. I will change things. This, this is the context that we need to hear. The longing that we need to feel as we step into the story. Because the Jewish nation had been living for centuries wondering, when would God do this? When is he going to redo Sinai, but redo it where he remakes us from the inside out first so that we can actually follow him? When is he going to fix it so that we actually know what it's like to be his people and to know him as our God? So much of their history was a history of a fractious relationship where they had cursed God and rejected him. And the people who are faithful are longing for the moment when he shows up and brings this new covenant to his people. It's in that context that Jesus looks at his disciple with a cup in his hand, and he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. They must have been stunned. They must have been stunned with those centuries worth of longing when he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is the moment when God is going to remake your heart. Can you imagine Peter looking at that going, this is the moment? This is the moment he's saying when that promise of Jeremiah 31 is fulfilled, when he will be your God and you will be his people. Can you imagine James and John going, this is the moment when it all gets remade? This is the new covenant in my blood, he says to them. This is the moment when you will be given a new heart. This is the moment when you will love God from your heart and you will want to follow him. This cup, this cup that is poured out is the new covenant in my blood. They must have been stunned. They must have been stunned. They would have understood his reference to blood. After all, like I said, there's always blood involved in the, new co- in the covenants. They remembered the story of Moses dashing a bowl of blood against the altar and sprinkling the people with blood. They would have understood the reference to blood. They might have been perplexed at the idea that they had to drink this cup. But they would have understood the reference to blood. But the thing that they would have been surprised at stunned at was to hear whose blood it was. After all, in all these failed covenants, it was the blood of a ram, the blood of a bull. Enter into that room with you as Jesus looks at them and he holds a cup and he says, this is the new covenant, but it's in my blood. It's in my blood. That longing that just a moment ago would have been saying, the new covenant is finally here. And then they hear the cost. And your blood. And your blood. The disciples must have been stunned. Some of them might have protested. Perhaps they knew enough by this point that protesting was not the right move. Peter had learned that lesson a few times. Perhaps they simply sat in stunned in silence. It's hard to know what they thought at that moment. This is it. 
the promise of Jeremiah fulfilled, but it's in the blood of Jesus. What's he going to do? How is this right? How is this fair? We don't know what they thought. We don't know what they felt. But as I grappled with this passage over the last few days, there are things that I thought we need to hear from it. I don't know what the disciples felt, but one thing that overwhelms me is the promise that the Lord is giving us in this meal. We take it every single Sunday, so oftentimes without thought. But listen to the promise that's being made. This is the new covenant. This is God binding himself to you. This is God saying to you, you are mine. This is the Lord Jesus saying, this one cannot be broken. In this declaration of this is the new covenant, he is saying to you, I will remake your heart. In this declaration, he is saying to you, no matter how deep the shadows you go through, you will be mine and I will be your God. I was overwhelmed by this because there are so many days when we say, Lord, where are you? And yet every Sunday he's saying, drink this. This is the covenant that I make with you. I will not abandon you. You are my people and I am your God. But if like me, you say, you protest, but I'm, I'm, I'm like the Old Testament Jews, I've been unfaithful. Remember how this covenant was actually put into action. Jesus kept our side of the covenant. It was ratified without your work. Before you were born, this covenant was set in cement, sealed with blood, stamped forever. The Lord Jesus says to you, even if you have failed, I will not break this covenant with you because it is not predicated on your faithfulness or your obedience. This is the reminder that we receive every single time we enter and take and eat. It's like someone renewing their marriage vows. You come forward and you know that it's already been done once and for all by Jesus on the cross, but every time you taste it, there is a pledge being made to you from the lips of the Lord himself who says to you, I have made a covenant with you, and I will not break it. I was overwhelmed by this this week. No matter how deep the shadows that lie in your path, the Lord says here, when the wine touches your tongue, I am pledging to you, I will not abandon to you. I was overwhelmed by that. The other thing that I was overwhelmed by as I meditated on this passage this week was just very simply the cost of this covenant. We all want to be right with God. That's why we're here. The, may, the way has been made, the path paved. We all want to be right with God, but consider the cost. The blood of the spotless lamb dashed on the altar, sprinkled on the people, on our lips and on our tongues, the Lord Jesus says, this is how much I love you. This is how much I love you. The cost of this covenant 
overwhelmed me this week. If you say I'm of no value, who wants me? I'm nothing. Consider the fact that the Lord Jesus said, I will give my very blood to form an unending covenant with you. This is what is declared to you. And so as we come forward this evening, as you taste the bread and the wine, as you receive the presence of Christ, as you come forward with empty hands, hear the Lord declaring to you, I will not abandon you because I do not break my covenants. And this one is founded upon the faithfulness of Jesus, not your faithfulness. Here I'm also, though, saying to you, you were worth the blood of the Lamb. That's how much I long for you. That's how much I love you. Let his love engulf your heart. And so as we come forward this evening, we leave behind the speculations of theologians, and we come and wonder, saying, Lord, indeed you love me this much? Lord, indeed you would be this faithful to me? Let this meal be a testimony, a seal, a sign, a pledge to you of the love of our